turn to the 16th chapter of Mark. Mark chapter 16, that's not safe at all. I'm going to put that right there. (laughs) Mark chapter 16. The Christian church meets on the first day of each week because Jesus Christ rose from the grave on Sunday. This is, as it's often called, the Lord's Day. As R.C. Sproul says, every time we gather on Sunday morning, it's an implicit celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is, but let it become explicit in our hearts. Our King, who was crucified, is alive this morning. He lives, He reigns, He loves, He forgives, He saves, He keeps, and He will return. And he doesn't live in our memories. He lives in real time. This is not a memorial to Jesus that we have here because he's a living, reigning Savior. All through Mark, it became clear that Jesus was the Son of Man, the divine figure promised to reign forever, whom, upon completing the Father's will, would be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And yet it also became increasingly clear that Israel didn't want Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior. And at the end of Mark, neither did the Gentiles. None of us does, beloved, not naturally. None of us are here singing and praising Jesus this morning and believing on Him because in our flesh we decided to. God gave us the gift of faith and therefore we believe or we too would reject Him despite His kindness and His mercy, His miracles and His powers, despite His truth. And the promise of salvation and eternal life, Jesus was progressively, steadily forsaken all throughout the book of Mark in the story that we read there. And it was his own father at the end that forsook him as he came near, but in judgment. And he was killed, crucified as God poured out his wrath against us on him. But as the story of his life on earth ends in death, another one of his resurrected life and the advance of the gospel, the birth of the church from Jerusalem to the corners of the earth through the church begins. Chapter 16 is Mark's denouement, if you will, in which all the complications and conflict are unraveled. All the unfinished business is finished. The resurrection in Mark is meant to, uh, to inform our understanding of the cross that came before it. The crucified king is the one who is risen from the dead. And by his perfectly righteous life and sacrificial atoning death, Jesus Christ bore the sins of many. Therefore, the resurrection by which God vindicated his son has made many righteous. So long live the king that was crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us to gather together, to sing, to worship you, to be with your people. Father, I ask that you would help me speak the truth this morning, Father. I ask for clarity in my mind. I ask for grace in my tone. Lord, I pray for the ability to speak the truth, God, that all may hear and understand and believe, Lord. So I ask for your grace, for your Holy Spirit to rest on every heart and every ear. And I ask and pray for this in the name of our risen Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Read the first eight verses here of 
Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You see Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So it was most likely, I don't think we can be dogmatic, but... Likely that it was Sunday, April 5th, in the year that we know as A.D. 33, when this group of women in verse 1 came to complete a proper burial for Jesus of Nazareth. It was very important for them to anoint his body with myrrh and aloe and um, other precious spices. The Jews followed this custom not to preserve a corpse, but to show their devotion to the loved one who had departed. It was also a sign of respect for someone. These women had seen him die On Friday, they waited until the Sabbath was over to do this. They had seen where Jesus was laid. So on Sunday morning, they arrive at the graveside. This was almost 2,000 years ago now and counting. And this story is amazing. It was at first shocking for the women that morning as it would have been for any of us. On the way, it's like they remember that there's this large stone that they're going to have to account for and that's been rolled in front of the tomb or placed in front of the tomb. It's way too heavy for them, way too heavy for basically anybody to move out of the way. The tomb where Jesus was buried, so to speak, was cut into a wall of porous rock. It was basically a man-made cave. Bodies weren't placed in coffins at this time, but on shelves or pedestals that were placed inside these hollowed-out caves of very porous rock. The entrances to most of them were covered with a square stone Actually, but a very wealthy family, like the family of Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it was, had circular stones rolled against the entrance. So they're talking about who might roll away the stone when they get there. Could the gardener help? That's what they're talking about in verse 3, maybe. Could, uh, were the guards there? Could they help? The disciples are still in hiding, so they didn't know what they were going to do. But in verses 4 and 5, their worry becomes shock and awe. They were alarmed. The text says in verse 5, look in verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. This announcement has been echoing through history ever since. He is not here. He is risen. And it will be answered when he returns physically, literally, In the flesh, he has risen. He is not here. The angel reiterates for them so that it's clear for them, for the witnesses that would come for the reader. This is the one who was crucified that has risen. This is Jesus of Nazareth who is risen. The one who died that awful death is now literally alive and well. This has never happened before. Not before this moment. The widow's son in the Old Testament, the widow's son... In Luke's gospel, Lazarus, the friend of Jesus, all these people were raised from the dead, absolutely, but not to resurrection life. They didn't raise to a resurrection body, a glorified body. They all eventually died again. 
but not Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus who was crucified. Everything in Mark's story led to the moment when Jesus hung on the cross under a sign that said, King of the Jews. It was as he was dying that a Roman centurion of all people declared Jesus to in fact be the Son of God. Now the final scene in Mark's gospel invites us to reflect on that horrible crucifixion in light of the shocking fact that this crucified king has risen from the dead. What if the death of Jesus is not the end of the story? What if that's true? What might that mean for us today in our lives here in the Ohio Valley? When the women arrived at the stone, or when the women arrived, the stone had already been rolled away. Matthew tells us in his gospel in chapter 28, verse 2, exactly how that happened. He writes, Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. It, uh, Again, it's always worth mentioning when you actually see angels in the Bible, they are not little babies that are chubby floating around with little tiny harps. They're coming here. This coming causes an earthquake. Clearly, this is an angel here in Mark, even though we don't have the same detail. While Mark only mentions that he's wearing a white robe, the other gospel writers give us more details. In Matthew 28.3, he tells us that the angel's countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. In Luke 24.4, he tells us that he wore shining garments. So the women realize this is not a being from the earth. This is not a human being. It's not a normal person at all. And they're alarmed. The word translated here, alarmed, indicates profound fear, profound distress. It's actually the same word used to describe what Jesus was going through in the Garden of Gethsemane in Greek. The initial response to an angel's appearance in Scripture is terror. There's a reason for that. Why are the... Let's actually ask that question since we're on the subject. Why are there differences in the account of Jesus' resurrection? Is it because the Bible contradicts itself and you have people writing hundreds of years apart and their facts don't go together? Is is it one of the primary disagreements that people cite or critics of the Bible cite when they say, well, the Bible's full of contradictions? You've probably heard that before. It's always helpful to ask the person that says that to show you one. And sometimes they can. And one of the things that's most often cited is the number of angels who were present at the tomb. The gospel accounts differ. Uh, Matthew and Mark each mention one. Well, Luke and John speak of two, and that's allegedly a contradiction in the Bible. Well, what would, if we just stop for a minute and try to think objectively, what would even the elementary principles of logic tell us? If two angels were there and someone says there's an angel there, that's not a contradiction. If there are two, there are one, right? Now, if Mark and Matthew had said there was one angel and there was only one angel, and the other writers had said there were two angels, then, yes, we'd have a contradiction. But that's not what we read. Mark is telling us what they saw on the right side of the tomb. It says this, a young man in a flowing white robe. In verse 6, the angel announces, literally, that he has been raised. God has done this to Jesus. That's why he's not there. And he is very specific so that there is no doubt. Again, it's Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus who was crucified. They were looking at the very shelf or pedestal where his body had been laying and he was gone. The resurrection is God's work all the way through. In verse 7, the angel sends the women away to tell his disciples the news that he is alive and would meet them in Galilee just as he had promised them in Mark 14, 28. And that included Peter. 
We talked about this last Easter, the one who had denied three times that he even knew Jesus. He's also one of my disciples. And even after his denial, Jesus has not removed him from service. Grace is greater than our sin. Even that sin. That's all there is to be said, really. But unfortunately, I have a lot more to say. (laughs) Luke's gospel tells us that he did visit his disciples in Galilee and was actually there with them for several weeks. In verse 8, the women are understandably filled with all kinds of emotions and flee from the tomb. They weren't weak. They weren't sissies. These women were present at the cross when his disciples were nowhere to be found. But this throws them off. And the first word of the resurrection came from these women as they did eventually find the disciples and tell them what they had heard. Apparently on their way to tell the disciples, they spoke to nobody. They didn't stop and talk to anyone. It's absolutely crucial this morning that we believe Jesus was both crucified and resurrected. To be a believer is to believe both of those things literally happened. Romans 4.25 tells us, here's why it matters from a spiritual perspective. Why we believe in both, because Jesus was delivered up to be crucified for our transgressions in Romans 4 and was raised for our justification in Romans 4. Two things that we needed, Jesus provided. We don't have enough. We need forgiveness. We need all our sins completely washed away. No remaining guilt, no taint or scar of sin at all. We need forgiveness from God and we need the righteousness of Christ because this is the only righteousness God accepts. So it wouldn't do any good, again, for a mortal man to say, I'm just going to do my best to not be that bad. God requires much more as far as righteousness is concerned than our simple commitment to not be as bad as we could be if we wanted to be. That's not the righteousness that God requires. The righteousness God requires is godly. It's heavenly. We can't produce that. So we need Jesus dying for us to wash away our sin. We need him rising for us. We need his righteousness vindicated by God so that it can be credited to us and it will count. And Jesus has done both. We must believe both the crucifixion and the resurrection. When God raised Jesus from the dead, that was the sign that God approved of him, that God vindicated him. He accepted the righteousness of Jesus. There is righteousness to be obtained that can make us stand innocent before God, but it isn't ours. It's the righteousness of Christ, and by our faith in Jesus. Why does that save? Because that's the person whose blood forgives our sins. That's the person whose righteousness is credited to our account. Jesus has done all the work. Jesus has done all the obeying necessary. Jesus has forgiven all the sin that we have. That is why faith in him saves. Faith is looking away from the self. And it is also a gift of God. And saying, I need his forgiveness to wash away my sin. I need his righteousness to make me righteous. Or I will be neither of those things. Forgiven or righteous. God doesn't save us And then make us blank slates and then we have to try to fill ourselves with righteousness from the minute we're born again to the minute we die. We are at the moment of conversion, forgiven completely and completely righteous. The writer of Hebrews tells us this, for by a single offering, a sacrifice, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time, has perfected those who are being sanctified. This is one of the most important texts in all of scripture and why the resurrection is so important. 
All that God requires has been accomplished by Christ. Therefore, all we do is believe and we are completely saved. We're not doing the work of salvation as Christians, beloved. We're free people who are now free to love and serve our neighbor and our enemy without the fear of losing anything. That's who we are. Now, if you come into verse 9, the science of textual criticism, the purpose of which is to reconstruct the original documents of the New Testament, is really one of the most precise and impressive sciences in the whole field of biblical studies. Textual critics have uh, closely examined over time the literally thousands of manuscripts that have been copied from the first century onward and have been able to reconstruct the original documents with an extremely high degree of accuracy. There are very little typographical, grammatical errors in Scripture. Even though the Bible we hold in our hands this morning, this copy... Uh, doesn't contain the original manuscripts. That's what we believe are inspired by God, written by the prophets, the apostles, the other direct recipients of His revelation. We can be confident that what we do have is extremely close, often exactly close, more often than not, to those original manuscripts. I bring that up here. Like, what does this have to do with anything? I bring it up here because the section we're about to read is one of the most difficult parts of the whole New Testament to reconstruct accurately the original content of the end of Mark 16. It's one of the most difficult or widely disputed passages in textual criticism. When biblical scholars are trying to determine exactly what was in the originals when they don't have them, they also look at external information, quotations, for example, quotations of the original text that the first and century, first and second century church fathers the apostles were using, and then they evaluate internal matters also. It's a rigorous process. One of those things that signifies to them, okay, we, we might have something we have to look at a little more closely here, are things like abrupt changes in style. That's what we have when we come into Mark 16.9, after what we've read in first or in Mark 16.1 through 8. That issue is what leads to questions about the final part of Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. For example... Verses 9 through 11 are very odd in light of what we just read in verses 1 through 8. It reads like Mark is starting his resurrection narrative all over again, but this time telling it with only Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb. So the internal analysis, right, the manuscript evidence, led scholars to conclude that the longer ending of Mark, verses 9 through 20, were probably not in the original manuscript. So why are they in our Bibles? Because... The translators believe that even though the authenticity of that section is disputed as whether or not it was in the first manuscript of Mark, it is a suitable conclusion to the gospel of Mark that doesn't contradict anything in Mark nor anything else in all Scripture. If Mark ended it in verse 8, it would have been very abrupt. It would have um, left out any information about Jesus meeting with the disciples, which the gospel anticipated, or the ascension. The consensus is... That in the early 2nd century, so very near to when these events happened, the Christian church wanted to give what they believed was a more appropriate conclusion to the Gospel of Mark. So they, with some of the apostles still living, with many of the original witnesses and authors still living, added this section based on what they remembered and had seen themselves. And the section reads, when you go through just 9 to 20, like a composite of the other ending information we get in the other Gospels. 
whether that was the case or not. The doctrines in this passage are consistent with what is taught in the rest of the New Testament, which allows us to read it with confidence. Again, there is not, and you don't need to take my word for this. Go study it. Go study it. There isn't a document in the world as reliable as as giving us the ability to believe that what we're reading is basically the exact same as the original than the Bible. There's nothing even close. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, which is where we build so much of our world history from. Do you know how many copies of that original manuscript exist in the world? I think like four, right? And nobody questions Caesar's Gaelic Wars. They teach these things in college. They don't question them. They're fact. There are thousands of copies of the manuscripts of Scripture, which makes your margin for error much smaller, right? If you only have two copies and they don't agree, then you don't know what was said. If you have a thousand and 999 of them agree, you're pretty confident that what you have mimics the original. So for what it's worth, beloved, there is no document in humanity more reliable than the text of Scripture. I feel like God had something to do with that. So let's pick it up in verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And when they went back and told the rest, or they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. So just as John tells us in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, Mary Magdalene encounters Jesus and then goes straight to the disciples who were still mourning, still in hiding. Then Jesus appeared to two disciples traveling in the country, which clearly parallels Luke 24, verses 13 through through 35. They also reported the resurrection to some disciples, but they didn't believe it either. And so the point of verses 9 through 13 is to continue this idea of the unbelief and the misunderstanding of the disciples that we've seen all the way through Mark. The cross and the empty tomb have not removed their humanity. They've not removed their problem with faith. They just accomplished something for them because of this weakness. Verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Apparently, Jesus takes the witness of those who saw him as so reliable as to rebuke their faith for not believing it. Right? So we stand in the exact same space this morning as the disciples. This word is sufficient. This is what happened. This is what happened. Jesus is alive this morning. He rose from the dead. Literally. Listen, there are many things that good Christians differ on, and it's okay It's okay most of the time. There are a few things we can't differ on. The resurrection is one of those things. We believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a non-negotiable. Right? It's a non-negotiable. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, Reverend Steele preached the resurrection of Christ. I bet Ralph preached the resurrection of Christ. I will preach the resurrection of Christ. Jacob preaches the resurrection of Christ. We 
preach Christ crucified, which means Christ resurrected, beloved. Again, non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. He didn't swoon. He didn't pass out on the cross. Right? He wasn't stolen. He is alive. God raised him up. He walked out of the tomb. So Jesus rebukes them in verse 14 for not believing the reports of his resurrection. Luke tells us in chapter 24 that even when Jesus stood among them that evening, they still didn't believe him. The fact that men didn't just rise from the dead notwithstanding, right? That's a hard thing to believe. It was also too wonderful to believe. They're probably thinking, so he actually did what he said? Those, those times that he was going to do, he's actually alive? You gotta be kidding me. It would, like, we can understand, right? Like, it would never be that good. Like, surely not that part of what he was saying was the truth. I mean, he did some amazing things, but people don't come back from the dead. That's it. That's final. No, it isn't. It's not final for anybody. But it's particularly not final for Jesus and now all who believe on him by grace through faith. The cross and the empty tomb mean the work is finished from God's side. His people will continue to struggle, but the work is done. The work is done. And this was just the first of many interactions that the risen Jesus had with his disciples over the next several weeks, as well as being seen alive by literally hundreds of people, as we're seeing in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. One person can have a hallucination and see something. Over 500 people can't have the same hallucination and see the exact same thing, right? They saw him. Over 500 people saw him alive. Verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe, notice that, will be condemned. This is Mark's version then of the Great Commission that we see in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the mission Jesus Christ gave to his church on the earth until his return. It's very clear. Preach the gospel to all nations. The gospel is not... God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is not find Jesus and you'll find purpose in your life. Nor is the gospel my testimony of what happened to me. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the proclamation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the glory of God for the salvation of sinners. That's the gospel. The gospel is the message of how to get technical. How his life, death, and resurrection can save us. By throwing all our faith for salvation onto him through the repentance of our sin. We're not coming to Jesus to be saved, bartering or bargaining. We're coming to Jesus sinful as we are. Will he take me as I am? Yes, because he will redeem you. No sin is too great for one so powerful, right? To come to Jesus is to repent of our sins, to agree with him that we needed the cross, to agree with him that we need his resurrection in order to be righteous. This is how a person is saved. And you don't have to know the theology and know how to say it and know all the right words. You just need to know Jesus will save you if you come to him. That's enough. So come. Anybody can come. Anybody can come. Jesus commanded us to preach this gospel to every human being on earth. Apparently, he thinks it will do the job he wants to accomplish in the world. And Jesus would say, it doesn't matter if you weren't standing there that morning. I wouldn't make up a dumb story nobody could believe unless it was true. 
Right? I am risen. Tell people that. Tell them I'm alive. My sheep will hear. They'll come. You preach the truth. And it was the last command of Jesus on the earth. And listen very quickly. Church, we must obey that command or we cannot call ourselves a church. Jesus doesn't teach here in verse 16, by the way, that baptism is also necessary for salvation in verse 16. Notice the wording there. Those who believe should be baptized. But not believing is what condemns a person. Right? Not believing is what condemns. The entirety of the New Testament makes it clear that faith in Christ alone is what saves. And baptism is a visible declaration of what Jesus has done for us. In that sense, He is with us as we go into and out of the water. But to place our faith in Jesus Christ is to be saved and justified completely. Jesus lived and died and rose again to accomplish that for everyone who believes. Our salvation to God's glory is the whole purpose of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return. The implications of that purpose is that the world would know that this is what he did. And the one who does not believe that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he did, what the Bible says he did, will be condemned. And Jesus would say is condemned already. So anybody that doesn't believe in Jesus is already condemned. The only thing you can do is run to the feet of Jesus. And for all of you who have, listen, you will struggle with sin. You will struggle with immorality. You will struggle with idolatry. But it is finished. So keep coming. Don't stop repenting. That's when I would worry about your faith. I don't care what sin you're caught up in. Do you repent? That, that would be my question for you, right? Do you care that what you do dishonors God and hurts the people in your life? Does the Spirit move in you towards following Jesus? Belief in Jesus saves. Rejection of Him does not. Period. Verse 17. And these signs will accompany those who believe In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus lists several signs that he said would be characteristic of faith in him. Now, it isn't clear whether all of these things continued in the church beyond the apostolic era in the first place. But it's also true that many of these things speak generally about the triumph of Jesus over everything and how his church on mission in the world is also triumphant. That's part of the point here. These words are not a test of faith, right? That's how some folks over in Kentucky see it, I hear, you know, with the snake handlers and all that. I'm out. I'm not picking up snakes, right? I don't mind them. I could probably, I guess, for my wife's sake, I could probably pick one up and throw it out of the house or cut it in half or something. I don't know. Spiders, no, I'm not. If it, spiders are a test of faith, I'm, I'm out. But it, that, that's really not, and I really don't mean, I guess, to make fun of those that do that. It's, it's not funny. It's, it's, it's actually very tragic. Many of them have been killed and they tend to be cultish. But, but that, that, that isn't, this isn't a test of faith. That's not what Jesus means here. Later when Paul, the apostle, was on the Isle of Malta, 
he was bitten by a snake and didn't die, a viper, which amazed the people and opened the door to proclaim the gospel. That's what that would be for. It's not a test like make sure you can pick up snakes and not get hurt, right? None. Of, we shouldn't read any of that like that. Right? We've just been told that he who does not believe is condemned. So none of these things are necessary to be justified, right? We need to see that from the text. But I don't believe all these amazing signs have passed away. I don't think the Bible teaches that. But what is clear, given what we read in verse 20, is that he's mainly referring here to the age of the apostles in the first years of the church. We'll see evidence of this very thing in the book of Acts. After Acts, you don't really see it much at all, for what it's worth. In verse 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. I wish I could read in a more dramatic way. That verse is everything. That shows us the point of Mark's gospel. This is what the resurrection means. This is the truth he wants that persecuted church. Remember, all the way back in the beginning we spoke of them hiding underground in Rome to know, verse 19, more than anything else in this moment. This sentence describes two of the most important events in the ministry of Jesus. His ascension and his reign in power at the Father's right hand. We don't talk much about Jesus' ascension. I don't know why. But the coming of the Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, foretold by Jesus in Mark 14, has finally taken place, I believe. Jesus has ascended to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. He's taken his seat at the Father's right hand. To him has been given, as we read, dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. The Bible speaks of that being the case when he ascends to the Ancient of Days, to God the Father, and takes his seat at his right hand, which is where we also know he is from the book of Hebrews. crucified king has risen and is reigning now as king of kings and lord of lords everything belongs to jesus and as hebrews 2 will tell us no we don't see it that way yet absolutely not that would be a crummy kingdom we don't see everything in subjection to him but that doesn't mean it isn't because we see him on the seat of dominion as God makes all his enemies into a footstool for his feet. You say, it doesn't look like Jesus is reigning. Well, that's because right now all the furniture is being messed up because God's pushing all his enemies underneath his feet. So there's tension and conflict on the floor of the world. But he reigns. His kingdom has come, and it is coming. Verse 20. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. As soon as Jesus left this world, we know from the book of Acts that his apostles went to Jerusalem to wait for the Son of Man to send the Holy Spirit. And from the moment he did that in Acts 2, they have never stopped proclaiming his message. And we won't until he returns in exactly the same way they saw him ascend on the clouds of heaven, beloved. He will return in power and in glory. And every eye will see him. Praise his name. Accompanying signs were given to the apostles to confirm the truth they proclaim. And even today, his hand and his power are not weakened, nor is he limited in what he can do 
as the glory of God revealed in the gospel covers the earth like the waters cover the sea in fulfillment of Habakkuk. Those latter disciples of Jesus, hidden in the catacombs underneath Rome, had heard the story of their king. They listened as this was read to them. Maybe they poured over it themselves and borrowed it. And The king who was crucified at the hands of men, that's what they're in danger of. Maybe not crucifixion, but certainly death at this point. Crucified at the hands of men, mistreated, disregarded, maligned, insulted, opposed, beaten, killed, but whom God raised from the dead. Which means if God vindicates you, you will rise and remain alive forever. That's how the crucifixion and the resurrection and the story of Jesus inform my everyday life. No matter what I encounter here, God is going to wake me up. We will be with Him forever. What exactly was going to happen to them is what happened to Jesus. If they lost their lives, it would not separate them from His love. It would not separate them from His promise. Jesus often spoke explicitly of his death and also described the kingdom as being so close that it would come with power even before some of his hearers died in 9-1. The only thing left to happen before the great day of resurrection and the coming of the kingdom was the suffering of the Son of Man in Mark 9-11-13. But now the Son of Man has suffered. He died. He suffered all the way. And he's been raised from the dead since the Son of Man in Daniel was the one who would receive this kingdom. Jesus also looked forward to the coming of the Son of Man. He picks up on that theme. So from the beginning of Mark, the expectation of the coming of the Son of Man has gotten more and more intense. 838 to 91, 14:28. it just keeps building. You get those time stamps, then you see them reflected in the suffering, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. Just before the Passion narrative began, that final suffering of Jesus. He said that His coming, this coming of the Son of Man would follow the abomination of desolation, the greatest tribulation of all time. And once the Son of Man had come, the kingdom itself would appear in 1329. This narrative forces those things to come together in our minds. The coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the kingdom, because, beloved, they're the same event. When we come into Mark 16, what has been predicted so often has finally come to pass. The servant has been vindicated. Justification has arrived in the world. The kingdom Joseph of Arimathea was still looking for in 1543 has arrived. As at dawn, as he predicted, the promise is fulfilled. He is risen. Mark tells us that by the resurrection and ascension, the Son of Man has come to the Ancient of Days. In fulfillment of Psalm 110, verse 2, he is now seated at the right hand of God, installed as Lord, and his authority and dominion will last forever. You and I will never live in a moment where Jesus isn't reigning. And listen to me, beloved, not because it's me, but because it's Jesus. If the missiles fly, if nuclear missiles fly between now and when we next meet, all of this is as true as it is this morning. None of it will change. None of it. The only thing that will change is our address, beloved. He is risen. That is why 
the time for silence about his identity is over. Don't be a witness as much as you can, as much as you think about it, because that's what Christians are supposed to do, and you want to do the right thing. It is the right thing. Use as motivation to obey the command the fact that he is risen. They should believe you. This is the truth. Right? He's alive. This is the reason to go and to tell. We aren't selling a damaged, rotten bill of goods. We're selling life. But there's no cost. The cost was taken by Christ. The time for silence about his identity is over. And if we're thinking correctly about Ukraine and Russia and all this, then let us be even more adamant to proclaim Jesus. I want to go home too. I want to get out of here, but I'm not there yet. I'm here. And if I'm here, the implication is that I will be telling it, right? So tell it until he takes you. Tell it until he takes you. Then you'll sing a different song. Salvation has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ, beloved. By his perfectly righteous life and sacrificial death, Jesus Christ bore the sins of many. Therefore, the resurrection by which God vindicated his son has made the many righteous. Long live the king that was crucified, whom God raised from the dead. What a way for Mark to end this great gospel. The last day's mission to the nations has been lost. Tell the good news Everywhere, let the nations be glad the Lord reigns. Peter Bolt says this, Although the cross is at a distance from us, it is still in our world. It stands as an ensign, a banner, a signal to the nations for all time, saying, Here is the hope of the world. The Son of Man's mission to the nations continues. Our world is without real hope and will decline further unless the good news of the crucified Christ is widely spread and believed. It is time for a new call to proclaim that the only hope for the world rests in the crucified Son of God. The whole world needs to hear the good news again. In this cross at a distance, God has come close. What difference does it make to me that Jesus reigns? Well, of course I would say this, but beloved, it makes all the difference. Because His reign is not just telling us who's in charge of the world. His reign is telling us that the one who's in charge is the Savior who died for our sins and was raised for our justification so that we might be set free from our lifelong slavery to the fear of death. That's really what's being addressed here. We need to see the significance of this. If Jesus wasn't crucified and if he didn't rise from the dead, there is no relief to be had from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. None. All there is is death. All there is is condemnation. All there is is one day for us to stand before the Creator, the living God, with the record of what we've done and hope that the good outweighs the bad. But it won't. This is God we're talking about. Denying that He's there won't change that. Denying that we have to give an account won't change that. Only Jesus will change that. And no matter what we are blessed to have and to hold in our lives, no matter what we're able to achieve, listen, we are all dying. We're all dying. It's coming. Everyone in this room will die. Everyone that we love will die. I didn't come here for that, right? Well, I'm sorry. 
Right? I don't want it to happen either. But it will if the Lord tarries. So let's talk about it. It's, it's the elephant hiding in the corner of every room we live in. Every place we go. I took my daughter last night up on Fork Ridge to go to her friend's house. It was a pretty, you know, beneficial Saturday. I got a lot done, but it's Saturday. My mind's on life, you know, Sunday morning, all that stuff. And without even, I'm just spaced out thinking without even thinking I'm going around Fork Ridge like I've lived here all my life. And just, and I start to, I mean, I, obviously I'm fine. I didn't wreck or anything, but like I, I didn't go through yesterday thinking tonight I'm going to have to drive up on the ridge and I could lose my life. Or I could go flying off one of the sides where inexplicably there are no guardrails. I don't. That's fine. Zero degree turns. I don't know. Right. But I mean, we all know this. This isn't even really a, a Christian thing it, at any moment. Right. Now, if that's true, especially if you're safe, go tell it. Go tell it. There are people in the Ohio Valley that will lose their lives today that don't know or that still don't believe. And we have one thing, one thing that will do them good. One the gospel. That's the means by which God raises people spiritually from the dead. So proclaim the gospel. Jesus is the way that takes us beyond the sun. He takes us beyond the world. He abides with us in the present because he's going to be with us forever in the future. He came to address the main thing for us, beloved, that day of reckoning. Fear of its unstoppable approach. That is why it matters that he's the one who reigns. Bow your knee to King Jesus. Praise the crucified King who is alive this moment and in mercy today will receive all who call upon Him because He lives and He reigns. 